Hello everyone, it's January 29th, 2019. This week, Dennis's modem went kaput just as we were beginning, so he won't be joining us in orbit, but he was able to make the data relay, which is all about navigating the endless black ocean of space. Let's find out how it's done, and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 195 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Hey, you want to talk about fish? I already got the fish talk out of the way. Um, my parents, I... Uh, I I'm going to give them an on-air thank you because it was my birthday yesterday and they gave me a hoodie that's like printed with an Apollo uh, flights or Apollo uh, EVA suit pattern on it. So it's like a hoodie that Oh, looks, that's a cool idea. Yeah, yeah it's pretty neat. And I, I wish I wore hoodies more often. There's a very narrow window when I can actually wear hoodies, but this thing's pretty light. So hopefully I can get a couple more chances to wear it. And then on Reddit, there's a guy who is um, designing a SpaceX flight suit hoodie where Mm. it's not just printed with the pattern it actually is like sewn uh, you know with those particular panels so it looks it looks right and uh, i told him hey when when you're ready like let us know (laughs) we'll talk about it on the show so hopefully i can get one of those too and i'll just have all the spaceships or all the all the spacesuits it's a cool idea you know i don't really ever wear I i don't even own a hoodie i don't really wear them but um this one with the apollo flight suit it really does look quite convincing like at a distance you're like is that guy wearing a flight suit let's move on to this week in spaceflight history we have exactly three winners um and i think that they're full-on winners right they got the correct answer and they got the clue yeah i think i think everybody uh explained what the what the clue was i mean it's not it's not super hard to figure this out but <laughs> uh so our winners are kyle hc science and jason Friesen. and last week's clue was that ham cooked faster than i expected so this week in spaceflight history is january 31st 1961 it was the flight of mercury mr2 um so mercury the capsule was flown on two different rockets, uh, Redstone and Atlas. So when you hear MR or MA, that's telling you what vehicle it's flying on. All of the orbital flights were all done on Atlas. Atlas also did a couple of suborbital flights. I know at least one, maybe maybe more than one. Um, but Redstone was what they mostly used for their suborbital tests. So prior to the MR2 mission, there's not much. There were a bunch of Little Joe, Big Joe flights, which we've talked about on the show before. Uh, there was also MA1, Mercury Atlas 1, which was uncrewed, suborbital, and uh, not successful. <laughs> MA1 is kind of fun because they did it on a super cloudy day. And all the scientists were like, hey, uh, we would like to be able to see what's happening. And they're like, nope, we're just going to launch it. And of course, it pretty much just blows up. I mean, it didn't blow up, but it there was a failure. Uh, so that's MA1. Then there was MR1, MR1A. And now we're talking about MR2. So uh, MR2, you know, this is all iterative. So MR2 did some things that no other Mercury rocket had ever done. Uh, They flew an environmental control system. They flew with an attitude stabilization control system. They flew with live retro rockets instead of uh, dummy retro rockets. Those might have been helpful, but ended up not being helpful. Um, They also had a voice communication system and closed loop abort sensing, um, which basically means that the abort uh, system was turned on instead of just able to register abort conditions and not do anything about it. Um, And then the capsule also had a pneumatic landing bag. So think uh, Soyuz. Also, uh, this was the first time that the U.S. flew a chimpanzee. And on board was Ham, 
That's part of the clue. We'll get to the other part of the clue later. Ham is uh, such a cool little guy. So, you know, it's really easy to anthropomorphize uh, chimps in particular. Uh, we, we see ourselves in them. And, and so it's hard to remember that they're not humans. Uh, they're very, very, very close to sentient, if not actually sentient. But, the, you know, they're not humans. But anyway, in these photos, Ham looks happy when he's smiling. He looks... Uh, sober and uh, brave when he's not smiling. And I don't know. I, I like Ham. Uh, Ham is a fantastic name. I love uh, pork-based uh, animal names. Uh, but of course, <laughs> Ham is actually not referring to meat. It's referring to the Holloman Aerospace Medical Center, which is where they trained this group of chimps. That's uh, in uh, New Mexico. And, you know, they purchase the chimps and train them and house them in, uh, in New Mexico before they moved to the Cape. And uh, yeah, so Ham was selected out of a group of 20 chimps, uh, and he was only selected the day before the launch. So it's, it's interesting that they, you know, with humans, obviously, you need so much more forewarning. And here they're just like, okay, all of you chimps can push levers. Who looks, you know, ready to go right now? And then it's also worth mentioning MA5 is the flight that flew Enos the chimp, two famous chimps. So uh, this mission, they put Ham in the rocket. And and this is actually really cool. So Ham w- sat in a couch like a that was like a clamshell spacesuit. So you, so you close the top and you you know probably uh, turn some bolts in it. Becomes this airtight little capsule that's both a comfortable couch to sit in. Uh, it's you know an airtight spacesuit. There are also a bunch of levers in there. And so part of what they were doing was giving chimp commands to push levers to be able to watch his cognitive his cognitive functions is you know seeing mm-hmm. if he's you know passing out because of zero g you know because there was a time when we thought that zero g might make it impossible to breathe and that kind of thing so anyway they they put ham in his nice little clamshell couch they put it on top of the rocket and then he sat there for four hours there were a couple minor issues but notably they had um, an ac dc inverter that got too hot and so I think they had to pull it and replace it. I'm not sure what the fix was, but they sat there for four hours trying to work this issue. Now, uh, remember, this is MR2. Uh, the previous mission was MR1A. And MR1A flew too steep of a flight profile and experienced super high Gs coming down. And so this time they're like, okay, let's not kill our chimp. Uh, let's do a shallower flight profile. So what they intended to do was 115 miles up and 290 miles out. Uh, That's 185 kilometers up and 467 kilometers out. Unfortunately, that's not what ended up happening. Almost immediately, they noticed that they were flying a steeper trajectory than they intended. um, And the trajectory was only getting steeper as they were going. Uh, If that wasn't bad enough, uh, before nominal cutout, they ran out of locks. I don't know why they ran out of locks, but it, it cut out early, which caused the chamber pressures to change, which caused the abort sensing loop to trigger. So even though they were safe and could have just let the engines die and then do a normal separation, the abort, uh, the abort circuit decided to uh, fire an abort, which means that they ended up 
A, pushing the capsule higher than it was supposed to go, right? Like not only were they going steeper, but they also added extra delta V. Um, and then on top of that, it caused them to lose their retro rockets, right? That retro rocket package that's on the back um, gets decoupled during an abort. And so they would have really liked to have been able to use those uh, retro rockets. They wound up flying 157 miles up and 422 miles downrange. That's 253 kilometers up and 679 kilometers downrange. So that's quite a bit uh, higher and farther than, or uh, quite a bit higher and quite a bit closer than they wanted to do. That's just a steeper trajectory. Mm -hmm. So as a result, Ham was in for a rougher ride than intended. Instead of being weightless for almost five minutes, he was weightless for six and a half minutes. He ended up experiencing 14.7 Gs on the way back down um, when they were intending him to, to feel no more than like 11, something like that. So if that wasn't bad enough, a uh, sort of a future echo of a later event that would end up actually killing people, um, the snorkel opened early. So there's this, there's a valve that allows you to equalize the pressure between the outside of the capsule and the inside of the capsule. Um, it's important to open it on the way down so that you, you know, can actually open, uh, the door <laughs> when you land in the water, but it also allows you to, um, stop relying on your life support systems and instead just breathe the air that you're floating through on your parachute. Unfortunately, um, in this case, the snorkel opened early. I mean, it's, it's a really dumb issue. Basically, there's a pin that holds, uh, the valve shut and the pin was designed in such a way or that that assembly was designed in such a way that you get enough vibration, the pin can actually come loose. And that's exactly what happened. It's something that, you know, is easy enough to fix later. But if there would have been a person on this flight, they would have had to rely on their pressure suit. Thank goodness Ham also had a pressure suit, even if it was a rigid capsule. And he was fine. Uh, he actually didn't experience uh, depressurization. So luckily, he had no idea what happened. The second thing, if you're thinking about having a, a snorkel on a spacecraft, is you really don't want water to come in. And in this case, the snorkel was designed in such a way that water could come in. And they picked up, I think, like 300 pounds worth of water before they recovered the capsule. It wouldn't have been so bad if they would have landed where they expected to instead of overshooting uh, by so much. But yeah, so so Ham was in for a very harrowing uh, flight. And he survived, and by all accounts, he was, like, fine. There will be an image in the show notes of Ham accepting an apple, and he just, it's, it's right after they open his capsule up, and he's like, hey, uh, that was really crazy, but you're giving me an apple, so everything's okay. That is reward enough for a chimpanzee, at least. Hey, I mean... Who doesn't love apples? Yeah, may, maybe uh, maybe an apple wouldn't be my favorite thing, but, I mean, you could pretty much pacifate me with some food after you put me through something like that too. Yeah, cool. All right. That's a cool little story about Ham. And I thought that Ham got his name because he just liked being in front of the camera or something like that. You know, like he was <laughs> like, like he was a Ham. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's, it's worth mentioning that the rest of that clue, obviously, is the too steep reentry. So Ham cooked quicker. Mm -hmm. I realized it was a little bit morbid, but it's okay because he survived and he's fine. Yeah. So what is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 2001, the clue is like a giant squid cyclops. All right. More animal themed clues here. All right. Giant squids are pretty cool. They're known for 
a particular thing. In this case, we're talking about like if, if you think about a cyclops, they got like a giant eye in the front, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just hoping I'm hoping that this clue doesn't uh, not get guessed. Like a giant squid cyclops. And that's next week in 2001. All right. Well, if you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. Starship, the Starship Hopper, uh, the nose cone got knocked over by heavy winds and caused what mm. appears to be some pretty significant damage, actually, or at least according to one source I read, significant or I don't know about severe, but something along those lines. Like this is going to take a little bit of time to fix. So for me, it's funny because the thing already looked pretty crappy. And so yeah, I understand that there's like <laughs> structural issues that you have to resolve, but it's like, well, just put it back up. I mean, it already looks like crumpled tinfoil. <laughs> like what do you, yeah. it doesn't matter. But yeah. Uh, and, and like you said, it's the nose cone that came off so the rest of the the rest of the starship hopper is sitting on the ground but the the nose blew blew, mm-hmm. blew off yeah the nose blew off it's i don't know i think that's pretty embarrassing you know especially for a thing that people were already saying hey this doesn't look good yeah you know, like well i assume that at some point they were gonna attach it because i mean if it could just blow off well not then obviously you can't launch it like that well and and obviously they hadn't like really uh finished you know welding the whole thing together they had just kind of integrated it and mm-hmm. were still working on the structure so it was kind of just stacked on there but it was not in any way fixed to the structure so yeah so same in the chat uh says that it looks totaled and i i don't think that that's a, an unreasonable thing to say but it what I had seen was people were saying uh, on Reddit that, that repair efforts were beginning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, I don't know like at what point you just crumple the thing up and throw it away. I mean, it's it's still steel. It's, you know, it's not like the steel has started rusting and you need to get rid of it. So I, I really don't know. I don't suppose it's that hard to make a new one because it is just a nose cone, right? I mean, is there any – there's nothing particularly complex within well, that section? I mean, section. it's a compound curve, which is never fun. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not like there are really intricate parts. It's just a matter of getting panels put together Mm -hmm. properly. Yeah. According to Elon Musk's tweet, this will take a few weeks to repair. So the initial launch timeline for, you know, this uh, suborbital hop was February or March. So it looks like it's falling back from that. So I guess it's being pushed back further. But if it, if it takes just a few weeks to make, I guess just a few weeks more. So maybe like, you know, April we're looking at or like March, April, maybe. I don't think it would take. I was going to be time. surprised if they flew before March or April anyway. So you know, I mean, you're right. Yeah. So so I, I, I guess this push it. This pushes it back further than whatever time you were thinking in the first place. So you have to account for Elon time plus, you know, two more weeks, I would say. So I don't know, like, what would you say now, like June or something like that? I wouldn't even want to speculate. So before the show, Dennis and I, you know, Dennis is now, uh, Dennis's voice is echoing from no internet land. Um, and so, so we were talking before the show and he was saying, well, why the heck did they build this outside? And he was like, okay, Ben, t- answer this question and make me look like a fool. And I was like, dude, I have no idea. Um, so I, I think it probably comes down to the facilities that they have on hand. And, and I think it's reasonable to assume that they don't have a good facility to do this indoors yet and then dennis also asked where they going to build the starship like the actual starship outside and that seems really unlikely to me um, because it's much 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 more complex than the hopper and so yeah it's going to be interesting to see what facilities they end up using and you know maybe we'll find out if they were uh, available at this point or not have they built yet some kind of a integration facility that is large enough because i don't remember right now because starship is obviously big i was looking it up and what it comes down to is everything is 
basically just speculation mm-hmm. looking at satellite imagery like we we don't actually know what's going on i mean there there are some big buildings you know there's some buildings that look like they're going to be integration facilities but i don't think we know yet Let's do some short and sweet, and what three have we today? All right, first up, commercial crew swaps an astronaut. So Eric Bowe was originally scheduled to fly on the Boeing Starliner test flight. He has been replaced by veteran NASA astronaut Mike Fink. The statement released by NASA did not specify exactly what the reason for the change was, other than that it was due to medical reasons, unquote. (laughs) The other two members for the initial crew flight, Nicole Mann and Chris Ferguson, will remain assigned to the flight. Second up, uh, Blue Origin is coming to Alabama. Uh, Known as Rocket City, which I did not know actually, uh, Huntsville, Alabama will now be the site of a Blue Origin facility dedicated to the production of BE-4 engines for ULA's Vulcan and its own New Glenn launch vehicle. The decision to base the engine factory in Huntsville was made in 2017, but the groundbreaking ceremony took place on Friday, putting construction on schedule for completion by 2021. Uh, Blue Origin is investing $200 million in this facility and will add around 300 new jobs to the local economy. So that's cool. And third and finally, Hubble's primary camera is back online. Hubble Space Telescope's Wide Field Camera 3, which was taken offline on January 8th after engineers read anomalous voltage levels coming from the instrument, has resumed science operations. After several weeks of investigations, it turns out the voltage levels were fine, but the telemetry was inaccurate. Officials are now investigating the erroneous telemetry. Wow, okay. Didn't see that. Come on. All right. Right. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. Uh, what we have is, uh, I guess, just a little... Uh, yeah, I screwed up. Exactly where did this get mixed up, I guess, last yeah, week? In the, said... in the show notes, the, the audio was fine. It's just in the show notes. Okay. I credited last week's data relay segment to Ben McFerrin because we had just finished recording a segment with Ben McFerrin that we then banked, which I'm assuming is going on this episode. <laughs> so anyway, I had Ben McFerrin's name on my mind. And so I typed his name into the show notes and I put his uh, Twitter account and everything. Obviously, last week was actually Chris Bush. So sorry, Chris. Uh, I swapped everything out. But of course, you know, you only get uh, those show notes when you download the show. And uh, I think it's like, not you know, 80% of people download the show uh, the first day that it's released. So 80% of people got the, the wrong show notes. I'm sorry. A little minor mix-up. No big deal, though. Worth mentioning, though, because Chris did a great job. Yep, he did. All right, for for this data relay, we have Ben McFerrin with us. Uh, how you doing, Ben? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. So you're about, the, like I guess, the fifth or sixth Ben that we've had on. So why don't you tell <laughs> us about, about yourself, and we'll try not to confuse you with the other ones. Oh, sure. Um, so I'm an assistant professor of electrical engineering at Anderson University in Indiana. I got my PhD at Penn State specializing in control systems, but I really love space stuff. Uh, I guess my research is primarily controls on robotics and engineering education, but I really love space. Um, I grew up about 40 minutes from Wapakoneta, Ohio, which is where Neil Armstrong is from. And so I got to go uh, to the, he has a specific air and space museum there. It's small, but uh, it's memorable for me. 
uh, went there a lot as a child. And so just really excited to be here and talk to all of you. So yeah, I had no idea, Ben. We are <laughs> Penn State. Yeah, that's where I did my undergrad. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> And uh, did, you, did you want to plug your, uh, we'll give you a chance to plug stuff at the end as well, but do you want to sure. you tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel? Yeah, I have a YouTube channel. Um, it's, you know, only moderately successful, but it's videos for engineering education. I cover things like I, I have a whole 20 video series on circuits that I give my students as pre-class videos that are, that try to relate pop culture to circuits. Um, I have a, a number of software uh, related videos like Python and uh, KiCad and LT Spice, uh, different uh, electrical engineering softwares. You know, just uh, make it, I make them for the benefit of my students. But if I can reach other people and help them learn stuff, then it's worth it for me. I think I'm going to have to subscribe to your <laughs> videos. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're going to get into this week's topic, but the way that we do uh, topic collection for data relays, we just have a big folder um, with documents in it, and the document title is like the subject, and then we use documents instead of a, a list of titles, because that way we can put notes inside each document. Um, just kind of as like notes to ourselves in the future, or, you know, if we come across some interesting links, we can kind of throw them in the appropriate, uh, document, but not necessarily flesh out the entire, uh, the entire topic all at once. So, um, this week I have a thank you in here. It says, uh, suggested by Dave F and I'm assuming that's not David Foreman. Yeah, not me. He was listed in the topic grab bag as the person yes. who suggested it, but I don't know where it came from. Uh, yeah, and I don't either. I, I think that I was the one who started this this topic way back when, and so I'm sure Dave F out there is like, oh yeah, that's me. I wrote in an email, you know, three years ago. <laughs> um, but so thank you uh, to the mysterious Dave. And then uh, Ben, did you want to tell us what you're going to talk to us about today? Yeah. So today we're going to talk about spacecraft navigation. And before we really get started, there's a couple of notes I need to hit. The first is that uh, we're going to talk about navigation and space flight. Uh, not for entry, descent, and landing. That would be a whole another data relay or for land-based vehicles or rovers because, again, another whole data relay. Mm -hmm. And I also want to point out that there are three interrelated topics that often get mentioned together, uh, guidance, navigation, and control. And so I kind of want to define those so that way it's clear what we're talking about in this segment. So navigation, which is what we're talking about, are the systems necessary to compute current position and orientation based on sensor data. So this means determining the state vector of the spacecraft at any given time. And those states could include velocity, attitude, location, and often some combination of those. So this differs from guidance. Guidance is the process of making decisions about how we're going to change the motion of the spacecraft, uh, how we would change position, velocity, attitude. It's typically based on the equations of motion. And the goal of guidance is to get the spacecraft from one location to a specific target. And if I talk about this in more detail, this is the physical uh, hardware and control system and actuators uh, it relies on information from the navigation system. Um, and then the, the separate topic would be control, which is the strategies used to make the above two possible. So when I teach control systems to my students, I would draw a diagram which has three blocks in it. It would actually have four blocks in it. So when I teach this to my students, I would draw a diagram that has four blocks in it. I have the physical system, uh, the dynamics of that system, and then that's connected to sensors which get information about the dynamics of the system, uh, which is then connected into 
uh, a block called control, which is then connected into a block called actuators, uh, right? So uh, the navigation part is really the sensor part um, and the guidance and control kind of fills out uh, the control and actuation part. And so the strategies used in this are really variable. There are numbers of papers just about different types of control systems and strategies, uh, which is totally my jam, but maybe not appropriate for <laughs> a daily relay. So we can, uh, if we're going to talk just about navigation, we can classify the sensors and strategies uh, in a few different ways. The first way is what they're used for. So there are those that provide location, those that provide velocity, speed and direction, uh, those that provide attitude, that means angular departure from a reference. This includes pitch, yaw, roll, etc. And then those sensors which provide a combination of the previous three. Most of the sensors that are used on spacecraft fall into the fourth category, which is those that provide a combination. So rather than split things up that way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to go for the most common usage. The bigger subdivision that I can divide things into is things that are on the spacecraft and then things that are actually external from the spacecraft. Now, this is a pretty long uh, list with a lot of detail. If you guys are looking through the notes, I think this is like a seven page document. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm sure I missed something, but at, at least on the survey level, this should be uh, hopefully valuable to the listeners. All right, so I'm going to start with different sensors and strategies that are available on board spacecraft. So let's start with the first common usage, which is sensors used to find location. The first sensor that I would mention is uh, GPS. This works exactly as you would expect GPS to work on Earth. We have satellites that contain atomic clocks, which are synced with receivers, uh, and we can calculate the range from those satellites using the delay time from the transmission. If we use multiple satellites, usually four, we can get the known location fairly accurately. I will point out that on Earth, unless you have special GPS sensors like uh, RTK GPS, the accuracy of GPS is within a couple of meters. Um, I know this from uh, doing some work with robotics. Uh, if you have RTK in which you have a base station and you can do differential GPS, then you can get down to the order of centimeters. But it's within a couple meters. That's not too bad. Uh, and if you took repeated measurements, you could get velocity. But the issue with GPS is that this really only works in the local Earth system. Uh, the satellites for GPS are in medium Earth orbit. If you get As you get further away from them, it becomes more difficult to triangulate position. So you could see that as you get, I don't know, to moon orbit, we're already further away from the satellites than we would be on Earth. And so that accuracy mm -hmm. goes down because it's very difficult to get the position. So as we leave the local Earth system, GPS becomes less and less accurate till it's basically unusable. Okay, so the second category is attitude, uh, sensors that we use to find attitude. So most, and I would argue almost all <laughs> modern spacecraft use some form of inertial sensors to determine attitude. Most of these terms and technologies may be familiar, especially to folks in the audience that are used to doing things like building drones or doing anything with robotics. Uh, and a number of these topics have been at least mentioned or discussed as a part, especially of the This Week in Spaceflight History segments uh, as uh, specific 
spacecraft are, are discussed, but it's still worth covering them and maybe shedding some more light on how some of these things work. And before we talk about specific types of attitude sensors, it is valuable to point out that even high quality sensors can drift. And so this provides a need for redundancy and the, the rate of drift can be less than 0.01 degree per hour, which is very small on a short time scale, but over the length of a long mission, that's pretty significant. Typically this drift is corrected mm -hmm. using software. Often a Kalman filter is used. Often it's checked with other measurements from other sensors to get a good correction. All right, so let's hit some particular inertial sensors. The first is probably the one that will be the most familiar to people, which is gyroscopes. And I'm talking specifically about mechanical gyroscopes, which are spinning flywheels. And if the orientation of the flywheel changes, the flywheel applies a torque on the axis, which is proportional to the angular velocity of the gyroscope. These devices can use mechanical ball bearings, gas bearings, uh, which is what is used in Hubble. Going a little deeper on the Hubble gyroscopes, which uh, I think we just talked about in podcast 189, the gyroscope wheel spins at 19,200 RPM inside a sealed cylinder, which is immersed in a motor oil-like fluid. And there are very fine wires which transport electricity to the motor. In these gyroscopes, they use pressurized nitrogen to force fluid into a float cavity. The original gyros were pressurized using oxygen air, which uh, was also discussed on episode 189, but that corroded the wires. Uh, and so they mm -hmm. needed to be replaced. And I just want to point out that high precision gyroscopes are very expensive. They can wear out uh, and again, suffer from uh, some amount of drift. And so uh, that's why spacecraft like Hubble have several of them and need several of them to actually operate. Backups on backups mm -hmm. on backups. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, especially, especially if it's a telescope, because in that case, your pointing has to be really precise, you know, to arc second. For sure. You, you actually want to be pointing in the same spot for a long time, right? So mm -hmm. that makes a lot yeah. of sense. <laughs> so I have a question about that, though. So when you say drift, is that drift caused by like maybe the RPMs not being exactly 19,200? Or is it just because of other external influences? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think that it's probably a combination of all of those things, most likely. And this is speculation, so don't take me for <laughs> law or anything, but most likely. Uh, so if you go back to the definition, uh, as the orientation of the flywheel changes, the flywheel applies a torque on the axis, mm -hmm. right? If that torque is slightly off, uh, even by, I don't know, uh, some percentage of a, a Newton meter, that could be significant in providing uh a, a slight drift. If the RPM is a little bit off, uh, there's a slight drift. Um, you know, it's in a motor oil-like fluid to reduce any sort of friction, but there's still some frictional forces there. So there are things that could cause it to drift. Like I said, it, it's, it could be down to one one hundredth of a degree per hour or less. But over the course of, you know, a 24 hour measurement that propagates to a much larger yeah. uh, value. I was going to say yeah, a quarter of a degree a day, you know, sounds a lot. Right. <laughs> so, so what happens is that um, the software will just reset it to a, a new reference point. And so so would like external effects like radiation pressure also kind of come into bear? I would imagine so. 
Uh, that seems to make sense to me. So there's a YouTube video that I'll put a link to in the show notes uh, by Brian Douglas, who's a control systems. And I, yeah. I don't know if he's an engineer or just a professor, just a professor, I say. Um, <laughs> and he actually talked about this problem in drones, which is really interesting. And so the lecture is mostly about how you can uh, apply filters to get a better absolute determination of your orientation. Um, but he talks about how even if you have, you know, quote unquote, a, a perfect system that always reports true motion, mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that you're never going to be able to capture an infinite number of digits past the decimal point. And so any measurement that you take, any instantaneous measurement that you take is not going to be a perfect representation of reality. And those errors accrue. It's nice because obviously randomness says that they're mostly going to cancel each other out. But over a period of time, um, you're always going to have bias in a particular direction, even if mm -hmm. that particular direction is random. Yeah. So actually, first of all, if you haven't watched much of uh, the stuff on his channel, he's great. Uh, but Secondly, uh, that is a point that I hadn't even thought about until just now, which is that uh, because it is a, even though it's a mechanical system, it is interfaced with in a digital way. And uh, every sort of analog to digital conversion has mm -hmm. quantization error. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you mm -hmm. have great ADCs, um, if you get down to a certain point, the quantizer can't deal with measurements beyond whatever the size is. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because yeah, digital versus analog is really important because we've had analog gyroscopes that are truly analog and they, they only report their data after compiling it in an analog manner. I mean, uh, heck was it the V2 rocket that, that did that, that had a gyroscope in the nose to tell it how far it had gone. Cause it counted up Delta V. Anyway, we, we could get off topic real quick, yes. but the, there's a there's a link in the show notes that uh, is very worth watching. It's it's a, a valid rabbit trail. So let's move <laughs> on. Let's move on to the next type of inertial sensor, which is what we call an optical gyroscope. So the first optical gyroscope in space was the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer spacecraft, which was launched in 1995. Before that, they were tested on Earth. And the way that optical gyroscopes work is that they are constructed by making a coil of optical fibers. And then you use a single laser to produce a beam. That beam is split uh, to allow the light from the single source to enter the coil in opposite directions, one going clockwise, one going counterclockwise or anti-clockwise, however you prefer to say that. And as I take that setup and rotate it, the beam that travels opposite of the direction of rotation experiences a slightly shorter path. It makes it out of phase with the other beam. Uh, this effect is called the Sagnac effect or Sagnac. I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm going to pronounce that incorrectly. I, I even heard that. Yeah. I watched a video on how to uh, pronounce it correctly and I still don't got it. So <laughs> uh, this phase shift is measured through interferometry and is proportional to the angular velocity of the gyro. The size of this effect is related to the effective area of the coil, which means that if I have more churns in this coil, uh, the bigger the effect is. Uh, if you're familiar at all with electromagnetics, it's similar to Faraday's law, in which you, if you have a coil of wire, it induces a voltage if you immerse it in a time-varying magnetic field. And so the more turns you have in that equation, the larger the effect is. I have here in my notes an interesting YouTube video that shows uh, an example of the Sagnac effect. I would highly recommend watching it. It definitely helped me understand it a little bit better. 
so the benefit of optical gyroscopes is that there are no moving parts. So they're more reliable, but they do require initial calibration, uh, which is difficult in a spacecraft, and they are fairly expensive. So we talked about this a little bit when Rossi was uh, This Week in Spaceflight History a couple weeks ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know that there's, uh, you know, optical or optical gyroscopes are a thing, but I, I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on until you explained <laughs> it to me, Ben. So in my head, the way I think about it is if you had two identical runners on two identical, uh, what are those oval shaped running tracks called? Is there a specific name for that? A track. <laughs> oh, just a track. Okay. So, so if you, if you had two, if you had two running tracks, like in a butterfly configuration so that they shared one long edge and then peeled away from each other and came back and you were to have two runners start on the join track run next to each other and then split directions one goes left one goes right and they loop around and come back um, if both of these things were on a flat plane and those runners were i don't know identical twins with you know identical life experiences whatever they, they would make that <laughs> loop in the exact same time but if you were to warp the track a little bit so that one runner was running uphill most of the time and the other runner was running downhill most of the time then they would come back at at different times obviously and so uh what's happening here is it's basically the same thing with photons they're running the same distance right the the length of that of the loop of track hasn't changed but since light runs at a constant speed if the entire thing is rotating it's almost as if there's an incline in the in the running track that the, that the human runners are on if if, the, if everything's spinning since light goes at a, at a constant speed regardless of your frame of reference one loop is going to be effectively shorter because the loop is like running backwards or forwards relative to the light right that's how that works right ben i think that's a pretty fair explanation i the way that i it's just that there's a relative velocity going the opposite direction of yeah. the light right so yeah um mm -hmm. even though that's such a fractional amount of the speed of light well and it's it's a good thing that it's a fractional amount because that way interferometry is actually worth doing right well they're <laughs> they're out of phase but they're out of phase in the same period or something like that so it's it's so it's it's just a really uh, clever way of uh, accomplishing this i just want to point out too that uh, like basically what you had just said ben like that sort of thought experiment is how you can drive a lot of the basic tenets of special relativity oh, nice the fact that light's moving at the constant speed but then when you have things in motion yeah you know that's essentially yeah. time dilation is the kind of yeah. flip side yeah that's right that's right they're both moving the same speed but then how does one go i guess length contraction in this case right, right. <laughs> it's going a shorter slightly shorter distance because of the rotation yeah it's pretty cool all right, so next sensor, I'm going not going to spend a lot of time on this. Inertial measurement units. I think if I had a penny for every time that we mentioned IMUs uh, <laughs> on this show, <laughs> an inertial measurement unit uh, or IMU just uses a combination of accelerometers, which measure acceleration, gyroscopes, uh, and sometimes magnetometers, which is what I'm going to talk about next. And it puts all of that data together into a nice package, a nice state vector, if you will. And that data that is reported can be used to estimate attitude, velocity, and position. So even though I think this category was attitude, we also get velocity and position, which is great. And often these are used in the same system with a common filter. 
to check whether new predictions of location or attitude make sense. Uh, and it, it essentially spits out any estimated values that don't make sense. So let's talk about magnetometers, uh, which measure the size and orientation of magnetic field. These have accuracies down to one arc minute, which is one sixtieth of a degree. Uh, and there are a variety of types. In fact, on the reference I found, I counted eight different types. So we can't possibly talk about all of those. What I do want to point out is that uh, magnetometers require us to be in the influence of a fairly strong magnetic field in order to be used for attitude. So that means if we're uh, outside of the area where there is a relatively large magnetic field, then we have a problem. So that means that if we're in deep space in between planetary systems, that causes an issue if we want to use this. In fact, the magnetic field strength decreases as the square of the distance from the source. That's the Biot-Savart law. So Earth's magnetic field tapers off pretty quickly as we get further outside the system. Um, at that point, magnetometers are typically more useful as scientific instruments than as attitude sensors. In addition to sensors, we may use orbital models on, on the spacecraft, which can simulate motion and extrapolate attitude at specific times. Uh, this goes back to the use of something like a common filter uh, to check your estimation uh, along with sensor data. Often we have many of these inertial sensors uh, used together or used redundantly. There are non-inertial sensors that we can use to determine attitude. And this is actually where I think I'll spend the bulk of the time uh, because we will be talking shortly about star trackers, which are super cool. But the first type of sensor that I could mention are horizon sensors. Uh, horizon sensors are only useful in orbit of a planetary body or perhaps uh, of an asteroid or something else, uh, but they're only accurate down to about five arc minutes, which is one twelfth of a degree. Uh, so I would say that their primary usage would be in LEO, uh, where you have a fairly large planetary body that you're orbiting around. Alternately, you could use something like a sun sensor, which is more accurate, uh, down to one arc minute, which is one sixtieth of a degree. Sun sensors are only able to find the pointing direction, which is the direction the spacecraft is pointing, because we have a single reference point, which is the sun. So it gives a binary output. Basically, the sun is in the field of view or the sun is not in the field of view. And the way that these are constructed is that there's a thin slit at, top, at the top of a rectangular chamber. And this uh, lets a line of light hit photodetector cells, which say that the sun is there. Um, and typically, you set up multiple sensors so you can actually find the direction of the sun. Because if you have maybe a 1 60th of a degree field of view, You've got to do a lot of spacecraft spinning before you find the sun. Yeah, right. Uh, I will point out that we can also use solar panels as a primitive sun sensor. That's kind of the funny uh, consequence of having solar panels is that they only work when they're pointed toward the sun. So you can kind of get a feel about the about the pointing direction by using your solar panel. Uh, and you can get down to about one degree of accuracy with a solar panel That's as a sun sensor, Did, which is pretty good. Is there anything solar panels can't do? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, serve as valid structural members would be my yeah. uh, big concern. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, you say that now, but eventually it'll happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about star trackers, which are also sometimes referred to as star imagers. So star trackers have accuracy better than one arc second. Uh, and it's probably better now that my reference on this was from a 1995 paper. So an arc second is one thirty-six hundredth of a degree. That's pretty darn good. So basically 
you have an optical sensor and if you can track more than one star at a time you can get all three attitude angles meaning pitch yaw and roll and what the optical sensor does is it gets information about stars in its field of view uh, and then the microprocessor or computer system attached to it performs pattern recognition on the star constellations that are in that field of view and it compares that to a vast star catalog somewhere in here uh, or at least in my research i saw uh, a number of constellations that uh, shuttles star tracker uh, looked at but i can't come up with mm. a number off the top of my head so in theory if we have a, a working star tracker uh, we do not also require an imu because the computer can quickly update and extrapolate attitude, uh, but in practice, we still have IMUs used for redundancy. The update rate on star trackers are generally 1 to 10 hertz, but can be up to 100 hertz or 100 times a second at max. Uh, my speculation is that it's likely that IMUs are less expensive than fast star trackers, mm. and it's always good to have backups and redundancy, especially mm -hmm. if you're doing something with crude spaceflight. So the more stars it can see, the more accurate the attitude reading. Uh, in addition, the field of view is very important. If you have too little field of view, you won't get an accurate attitude. If it's too big, uh, the algorithms may take too long to run, or you may run out of memory, which is not as big an issue in 2019 as it was in 1995 when the paper that I used as a reference was written. Just I, thinking about the cost of my uh, Google Drive storage and how that's gone down uh, over the years. So the current state of the art is to use both star trackers for attitude measurement as well as an IMU. And you can use the star tracker, which you know is super, super accurate to allow the software to reset the IMU as it drifts. And these both become inputs into your common filter to check new data and prediction uh, validity. And you can say that a star tracker is immune from drift, right? Right, because the stars are always in the same location, at least on the timescales we're talking <laughs> right. about. Yeah, yeah quote unquote, <laughs> always in the same position. Right, right, right. I mean, if, if we were going to be have a spacecraft that was out for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, then maybe we could uh, discuss the motion of stars. But right, right, right. Uh, in this case, I think we're okay. Um, so I do have some notable uses of star tracker technology that I just want to mention. The first is the find guidance system uh, on Hubble. The find guidance system on Hubble is um, a set of special star trackers that make use of interferometry rather than optical measurements. They are specifically used to find pointing direction and it helps Hubble maintain a deviation of no more than 0 0.007 arc seconds. Um, and if you understand that an arc second is 136 hundredth of a set of a degree you realize how good that is yeah. wow <laughs> i was thinking when you when you were talking about optical uh gyroscopes earlier that it just is a rule of thumb that if you're doing interferometry you're going to be more precise for sure for sure whatever the context right. is it's just <laughs> right, right, right. yes and then i also want to point out uh the apollo person and loop star tracking um so apollo missions made use of a sextant to track stars and Oh, that is astronauts cool. would enter data from their sextant into the Apollo guidance computer to help provide navigational aid. And this was composed of two optical devices, two sextants. There was a, uh, or I guess two optic components on one sextant. There was a one hmm. X or one times wide field telescope, which was used to find the target star that they were looking for uh, or target uh, constellation. And then a 28 
times telescope that could be used to make the actual angular measurement. Do you know what the physical mechanism was to change between those two devices? Was it like a switch or a knob or something? Because they looked through the same optical eyepiece, right? I believe so. Um, it, it must have been a switch or a knob. I mm. found a reference at some point which had a picture of it, but I'm not, uh, I can't recall how exactly that mechanism worked. See, my, my goal in life is that if I ever found myself like if I ever woke up with no memory and I happen to be in an Apollo spacecraft that I'd be able to use it. Like, I think that would be a really cool set of skills to have. So I'm that always would be fascinated. a super cool set of skills to have. Put that on any bio that you ever come up right. with. Afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Can fly yeah, Apollo. Apollo star tracker. <laughs> so based on the angular measurement that they got, then Apollo guidance computer could compute the position of the command module based on previously stored data. Uh, probably the most uh, famous use of Maybe the f most famous usage was in Apollo 8, in which uh, Jim Lovell navigated using star sightings. Uh, this was difficult because there was a large crowd of, cloud of debris around the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. He also used some free time to do navigational sightings and accidentally erase some computer memory, which yielded um, a situation in which the I IMU told the computer to do an erroneous correction burn. This oh, was... My actually super helpful because on Apollo 13, he again needed to use navigational sightings to navigate the command module after after the IMU was shut off to uh, conserve en energy, although uh, they were in the LM in the limb then instead of the mm -hmm. uh, command module. But it was a good thing that he had that experience in Apollo 8 to figure out how to how to make that work. So now these measurements are all being made with a reference to, I suppose, the Earth or the moon, right? Because the one thing that I'm that I want to get clear is that this will tell you your orientation, but it couldn't possibly tell you anything about your navigation per se, right? Because the stars are fixed. You're not going to move relative to them because sure. you're not traveling that far, obviously. So mm -hmm. you, you have uh, the, you can get your attitude in terms of angle. That's really what the star tracker is being used to do, not the velocity, which is, you know, mm -hmm. speed and direction. Uh, just what way is the uh, spacecraft facing, if you will? So, so yes, you, they would use this, uh, they would use previous measurements of, of velocity. I'm sure there are other methods that were used to determine the exact velocity and direction of travel. So the other real world example I have of star trackers, other than being mentioned, I think every time we talk about a new spacecraft coming into a new system, um, <laughs> uh, what was it? Uh, was it, I think the Mars insight data relay that was discussed quite a bit in terms of having star trackers, but no details on how they worked. So that's why mm. part of what made me want to do this. So on shuttle, there are two, there were two star trackers. They were located at the extension of the navigation base where the IMUs were located, uh, which I believe was just to the front of uh, where the pilot sat. I'd have to uh, look at a diagram to be sure. And they were set in what they constituted as the negative Y and negative Z directions. And the reason that they're called negative Y and negative Z is that they have chosen using the right hand rule to put plus X direction in the direction of spacecraft travel. So if I'm sitting here uh, in my office with my uh, thumb pointing in the direction of X, and you can see that uh, Y and so Z are, 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 yep. <laughs> I think we all are to the left and up. So the star trackers, if you're orbiting uh, around Earth, uh, the star trackers are pointed to the left and up from what would be considered mm -hmm. up on the spacecraft. 
And these star trackers were specifically used to align the IMUs on board the orbiter, as well as to track targets and provide line of sight vectors for rendezvous calculations. All right, I feel like I've talked about a lot of onboard sensors. I have a couple more to mention. The first one I want to point out, uh, and I'll, I guess, highlight that we're kind of beyond inertial and non-inertial sensors. There are some other sensors uh, which have been used previously and will likely be used in the future. The first is radar and or LIDAR. Uh, so radar is ranging based on uh, electromagnetic or RF wave transmission. Uh, LIDAR is also ranging, but instead you use light or lasers to actually do that ranging. And these tools are often used for altimetry, uh, time of flight rate ranging, and uh, velocimetry, which you can get by taking Doppler readings. And often these are used for ranging in entry, descent, and landing stages, but also they can be used for rendezvous. I will point out that in the Apollo missions, uh, radar was specifically used for lunar landing. If you uh, watch the movie First Man or if you read Failure is Not an Option, you get a pretty clear picture of how the radar readings were being used by Neil Armstrong to uh, get that first landing on the, the moon. So that's kind of cool. When Curiosity landed on Mars, uh, they used radar for altimetry and velocimetry. Uh, and often radar is also useful as a scientific instrument. LIDAR is super useful for mapping. In fact, uh, that is how uh, autonomous cars will come to propagate across our roads is by uh, using LIDAR systems that can detect objects and determine uh, what's in the area. So you'll see a lot of a lot of unmanned probes that use LIDAR in uh, some sort of mapping uh, capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, um, self-driving cars tend to be more successful when they use visual uh, tracking for a number of reasons, but LIDAR is definitely a possibility. They use both. Um, is actually the most uh, successful things. Um, my university is just about to create an autonomous vehicle for a competition. Oh, cool. So in fact, um, there are other types of tracking, such as photographic or visual tracking. Uh, and this is typically used when uh, a spacecraft is approaching a target. Primary examples would include things like uncrewed probes reaching their destination. One recent example is OSIRIS-REx. There's also been use though of visual tracking in terms of rendezvous and docking. On shuttle, the crew optical alignment site would be an example of visual tracking. And so I think Ben, in, in the notes, you pointed out that it's an interesting time to mention that OSIRIS-REx is currently transitioning into landmark navigation, which will be photographic or visual tracking. And I'll also point out that Mars Exploration Rovers uh, use optically based velocimetry as well. So at, at this point, um, and again, I'm sure I probably missed something, but um, that's kind of concludes what's on board spacecraft. So we need to talk about what's uh, more outboard or external to the spacecraft. Uh, and this section is actually quite a bit shorter, which is good. <laughs> I realize we've been talking a long time. So outboard strategies can be used to get position, velocity, and pointing direction. One possible strategy is to use uh, radio frequency beacons. And these are just an RF transmitter at a known location and your spacecraft receives that. But unfortunately, to actually make this work, you need a directional antenna and you otherwise you only really know range. You don't really know uh, pointing direction. If this is set up correctly, you can get accuracies of one arc minute. And because there's only one reference point, that's why we know 
that it can only get point direction because your antenna is directional. It has to be aligned with the RF uh, transmission in order to actually receive it. And then the only other one that I really want to mention is a fairly cool one, which is called the Deep Space Network Precise One-Way Metric Tracking. And this is actually how we track, I believe, all of the spacecraft that are on their way out of the solar system. Think about Voyager. I imagine New Horizons used uses something similar. So what we have here is uh, accurate measurements of position of spacecraft using antennas from the Deep Space Network. And how it works is that a ranging signal is phase modulated to a transmitted carrier signal. It is sent then in the direction of the spacecraft. The spacecraft receiver locks on using what's called a phase lock loop, which is just a control system that automatically matches the phase of the received signal. Then the output of this phase lock loop is used to demodulate the ranging signal. And once you have that demodulated signal, then the spacecraft phase modulates that signal with the downlink carrier, which has a slight frequency offset from the transmission carrier. Um, and it sends the signal back. And at that base station, another phase lock loop allows us to demodulate the downlink signal. And this difference between the signal that was sent and the signal that is received uh, allows them to get range of the spacecraft. Um, so the received range code is compared against the model of the transmitted code to determine the round trip transit time. And it, it can get Doppler data by differencing several received reference signals. At least one source that I found uh, says that this gives instantaneous line of sight velocity down to 0.5 millimeters per second, which is wild, and also gives instantaneous range to an accuracy of about three meters. Now, I saw this on a Scientific American article. I'm not sure. I haven't been able to verify it uh, in the second place. But even if it's like three or four times that right. or more. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like which fraction of a millimeter per second accuracy do you want? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, if we're talking centimeter per second, that's still, yeah. that's still pretty darn good. And the information is for the probe location in relation to the deep space network antenna. If we're talking about probes that are going to a specific def destination, then other methods can be used when you get closer, such as photographic and visual tracking. Mm -hmm. And so in order to make this work, you need to have a clear idea of the location of the DSN antenna. Uh, that accuracy is better than five centimeters because they're on Earth, which in our reference frame appears stationary. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> they're, they're on Earth where we have tape measures. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, we also need to know Earth's position relative to the solar system center of mass. And we have that down to an accuracy of about 0.5 kilometers. Uh, and we plug all this information into an accurate model of the sol solar system, uh, which is an inertial model. We take the information from the three uh, inputs above and calculate the location of the probe. And it, it, this model even includes uh, forces acting on the probe. Uh, from our accurate model of the solar system. And if we take me regular measurements over time and compare it to the target location, we can figure out how close we are to where we think we are. Hmm. NASA would really like to update this to use laser communications, which could offer potentially improved navigation data and bandwidth. Uh, but this faces some challenges and it's not ready to be implemented yet. To further improve this system, JPL is leading the development of a deep space atomic clock. Uh, which would give better timing data than what we uh, are able to transmit from Earth. All right, so the very last thing I want to talk about is a proposed uh, 
GNC strategy. And the reason I want to talk about it is that there's actually been uh, a proof of concept that has been taken up as an experiment to the space station. So this seems like it's something that is likely to happen uh, in the somewhat near future. So this strategy is what we call X-ray pulsar navigation. X-ray pulsar navigation was developed at NASA Goddard, um, and it's really very similar to GPS tracking. And what they want to do is they want to make use of the relatively large number of extremely stable millisecond pulsars. So since we know the location of these pulsars and we know how often they send out a trans transmitted signal that we can view, mm -hmm. uh, then we can use these as reference points to kind of triangulate in the same way that GPS works. So they pulse with a constant frequency. Uh, as long as we can see multiple pulsars, we can triangulate position and they want to use specifically the pulsars that uh, pulse on the millisecond range that gives us a pretty good update rate and they want them to be emitting very strong x-ray signals and how frequently you see the pulses allows us to see to know where we are uh, if you move further away the frequency will very slightly slow down if you move closer the frequency will uh, appear to speed up wait you mean if your velocity is moving away right not if you're yes okay okay yes so so it's yes. yeah no. okay all right you got it um, so the biggest hurdle to implementing this on uh, actual spacecraft is that uh, X-ray receivers are big, and I'll come back to the size in a moment. So to show that this theory does hold up, uh, the Sextant experiment on ISS, uh, which stands for Station Explorer for X-ray Timing and Navigation Technology, has, as of 2018, provided a proof of concept, and you could allow accuracies in hundreds of... so you. If this works, you could get accuracies up to hundreds of feet in deep space, which again, it's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. The big issue, as I mentioned just a, a minute ago, is that these are still too large in size to be feasible for deep space probes. Uh, the nicer sextant experiment that went up to ISS uh, is about the size of a washing machine, <laughs> which when mass is a big key consideration uh, is, is still too big. Now, do we, do, I don't know if any, anybody, I guess it'd be Ben or Dennis would probably be the best people to answer this, but <laughs> uh, do, do you guys happen to know if we expect X-ray receiver technology to miniaturize or is it just, there's a physical limit to how big that cone has to be? My guess is, I mean, X-rays, you're just not going to really have them bouncing off things easily yeah. no matter what. Right. So you are going to have to do the sort of grazing optics Darn. So this is for generation ships only is, is what it comes down to. Well, it, it has to either be very large spacecraft or, um, you know, there, I think that there are still clever engineers out there, not me, mm -hmm. that will come up with ways to get x-ray transmissions. It will probably miniaturize, but I don't think we're ever talking about the way that you can miniaturize electronics, for example. Yeah. Hmm. Electronics, we're talking in terms of nanometers uh, <laughs> at this point for uh, transistors or even smaller. I don't know that that's ever going to happen for this because there are some physical limitations to actually grabbing uh, that data. Yeah. Even, even a washing machine seems kind of small. For <laughs> for basically an X-ray. Sure, I will point out that the uh, 
the Sexton experiment was part of a second uh, experiment, which was what is referred to as NICER. I'm not sure what that acronym means, but I do know that that had to take up some of the space in the washing machine as well. I think it depends on how far we're or how fast the probe needs to uh, escape, right? Uh, like you couldn't do something like this on Parker Solar Probe because it needed to be as small as possible to be launched as fast as possible to reach the sun. Mm -hmm. But perhaps if we're going to uh, the outer reaches of our solar system, that's still within reason because other things are smaller now. And I guess um, if, if, if you could make the, the aperture, right, the collecting area of your X-ray telescope smaller and smaller and still be sensitive enough for it to work, then you can have it be smaller because you don't have to right. change the angle all that much. So maybe that's sort of the approach to miniaturizing X-ray right. and receivers. Well, the, the fact that they feel strongly enough about this uh, proposed strategy to actually send something up to ISS mm -hmm. uh, indicates that they are uh, willing to undertake some expense to try to refine it. I mean, it's it's definitely a nice, tidy thing to be able to do. Well, yeah, because uh, it, it's like GPS in deep space. That's yeah. that's so cool. So I guess uh, from my end to wrap up, uh, there are a, a, clearly a large number of viable strategies. I think I hit a lot of them if I didn't hit all of them. <laughs> uh, some proposed methods are in the works. The selection of sensors and strategies often depends on mission parameters. There's a trade-off between accuracy and cost, a trade-off between navigation and science payloads. Uh, how critical is the mission to failures in navigation hardware software? Uh, we want to have, obviously, significant redundancy, especially on crewed missions, but I know even uncrewed missions benefit from redundancy. And even more of these uh, strategies or different sensors can be talked about if we wanted to do something in the future for entry, descent, and landing, or robotics surface exploration, and so on. I, I think it's this topic is particularly interesting, just if we can rewind all the way back to the beginning. When we talk about GNC, which I think is super fascinating, I don't know how many people, uh, even listening to this show, and this includes myself, uh, you know, a, a number of months ago, I don't know how many people know the difference between guidance and navigation. And so it's really cool to not only define that, but then to push through and talk about, okay, mm -hmm. so here's mm -hmm. how navigation works and here's why it's different than guidance. And it, it's kind of interesting because when I think about navigation, I think about maybe in a nautical sense, actually, you know, how do I get from point to point? Mm -hmm. But that's actually what guidance yeah. is. And so that's kind of cool to learn that uh, from my end as well. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, sitting in the front seat with a map during a, you know, a cross country <laughs> car trip uh, or a, a road trip. And, you know, you say, oh, you navigate. And what that means is, oh, there's a road sign. Well, yeah, right. there's a red sign. <laughs> I know where I am. Yeah. You say you you guide us. We need that's exactly where my brain yes. is doing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I gotta stop using that term. You're not my navigator anymore. <laughs> that, that's that's just a fantastic analogy. <laughs> Great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to put this together and taking the time to sit down and explain it to us. We really appreciate it. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, as I kind of said at the outset, I just love space stuff. So much. <laughs> I know there's probably a more elegant way to say it than space, stuff, <laughs> but um, I just, I, I like it a lot. And, and so this was kind of a joy to put together and to read through a lot of different articles, which were in some way relevant to things that I study as a faculty member and a researcher. Mm -hmm. So it was great. And I, I look forward to doing it again in the future. Upcoming watches 
we just have one, or possibly two, actually. One and a half, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, one, 1. 1.5 launches. <laughs> First one is on February 5th, and that is uh, the launch of an Arian 5 ECA with Hellas Sat 4 and Saudi Geosat 1 and GSAT 31. So I guess that's three different things going up into a geostationary orbit. These are communication satellites, and they're launching at, it looks like that this is an instantaneous launch window, and that is at 2101 UTC. But yeah, that's launching from uh, Launch Area 3 in Kuru. And so keep an eye out for that one. Yeah. And then this other like half launch that we have, um, we weren't going to mention it, but but Sam in the chat uh, says that as far as he knows, preparations are seen ongoing. And I do not like to uh, bet against Sam. <laughs> so um, basically, they, they're saying that by the end of January, um, will be launched the Saphir rocket with Doosty, um, which is Farsi for friendship. It's a microsatellite. And so this, this is an Iranian uh, launch. And yeah, all, like all they said was by the end of January. So hopefully it'll, it'll fly. Who knows if it'll get delayed, but we don't have, we don't have any more information than that. So maybe keep an eye out. Maybe we'll see some launch footage later this week. That'd be pretty cool. Alrighty. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. With that time to close out the show and deorbit the show actually. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. A big thank you to the YouTube channel DM Explains, who will sound familiar, <laughs> for becoming our most recent uh, $10 Patreon supporter. Thank you so much. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We are Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com so that's all and we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody